five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh for the WDMA. We're going to be talking about lifetime value today. So, I yesterday's yesterday's break even uh, or cu calculating customer acquisition costs kind of flowed into lifetime value, <coughs> and I wasn't too impressed with the uh, calculations. So I. Um, I looked up some more articles, and here's one from Clint Fontanella from HubSpot, and uh, from last year, not too long ago, not even quite a year ago, and I found a whole bunch of them. I found about half a dozen recent articles, and I wasn't impressed with any of them. Um, so let's look at this one, and I'll explain why. Um, it's easier to sell an existing customer than it is to acquire a new one. That is not always true. Um, I don't remember what I was trying to, what, I, what the offer was, but I remember talking to my list broker about um, Sherry's Berries, I think is the name of the company, and it, they sold dipped, chocolate-dipped strawberries. And I called the broker and I said, hey, you know, how's that list? I see it's big. It's like 2 million or 3 million names. And he said, yeah, a lot of people try it. Nobody continues with it. I said, why do you think that is? And he said, well, because Sherry's Berries um, is primarily a Valentine gift. They advertise a lot on talk radio and things. And, and you know, a husband says, hey, my wife might like a box of dipped chocolate dipped strawberries and buys, buys them. And they're they're good. I'm not a big fan of chocolate-dipped strawberries. I prefer either chocolate or strawberries. I don't like them together, maybe. I'm not sure exactly why. But anyway, so that's this year's Valentine's gift. Um, and apparently, Sherry's Berries has found that it's easier and less expensive to generate like an impulse buy and new customers than it is to generate um, a second order. Now, I also did work with, um, with, I'm trying to think, they own the Garden Weasel, and they, the president of the company went off to a direct mail seminar and, and said, and they were to telling everybody they should do a catalog, and so they, they also had Bonami Cleanser and Faultless Starch uh, as, as brands that they owned. And so they did a little catalog of cleaning, household cleaning products. And they had plenty of products, and it did real well. But they said, we try to rent um, the biggest list we have. We don't really, you know, Bonami Starch and, or Faultless Starch and Bonami Cleanser don't really have a list because they're sold at the grocery store. So we, but we do have the Garden Weasel, which was a tool to weed your garden. It was a German product uh, that was seen on TV mostly. Um, and they said... Um, we, we mail our catalog to that list and we don't get hardly any orders. It doesn't work at all. <laughs> it was hard to, you know, and in that case, they were trying to get a second order. Um, and, and, and this phrase, it's easier to sell to an existing customer than to acquire a new one has often been used to justify line extension, that it's easier to sell a second product, a different product to a product, to a company that has bought from you or to a customer that has bought from you. Uh, but it isn't always. 
you know, Trout and Reese talk about, in marketing warfare, talk about how your brain has slots in it, and you keep the slots separate. <laughs> and so when, uh, when Levi's, I think it's Levi's, yeah, Levi's decided to go into khakis, they created the brand Dockers because they were a jean brand and they thought we'd do it different way. And Dockers, of course, has been become a legendary product. We we use it in the generic sense. Lee Jeans decided that they would just make Lee khakis, which, of course, you you can see how much traction they got. Nobody thinks of Lee as Dockers. You know, you might buy them if they're on special or something. So sometimes it's easier to create a new category and get new customers for that category. I've seen this many, many, many times. You know, even with Cabela's, we, you know, when we started, we thought that, you know, most people who hunt also fish uh, and, and pretty much vice versa, Dick and Jim Cabela hunted and fished, and so we thought that most of their customers had hunted and fished, and it's probably true that they do, but when we actually looked at customers that bought hunting and fishing, it was a surprisingly small segment. I think it was between 5 and 10% of their file that bought both hunting and fishing. When I got started, I'd fished all my life. When I got started hunting, I bought my hunting gear from Cabela's, partly because they'd spent you know, like a half a million dollars with me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I better get going here. But uh, I knew how to, I didn't, you know, the fishing lures from Cabela's were expensive, much more expensive. And I knew how to go into Walmart and buy some 67 cent poppers and catch plenty of bluegills with them. So I, I had a different view of Cabela's as a hunting supplier rather than a fishing supplier where I could get, I had plenty of options locally. And uh, so it's just not that simple. Sometimes it's easier to get a new customer than it is to acquire an old one. But if you're a local business, you pretty much have to keep customers happy. So anyway, this article goes on in that vein, in that overly simplistic vein, and says that uh, customer lifetime value, I call it LTV, uh, is the total revenue a business can reasonably expect from a single customer account through the business relationship. Now, yesterday we talked about how most customer files have only have over 60%, over half of their file is one-time buyers. They've only bought once, they never came back. Despite repeated remailings, emailings and a beautiful website or a store. The the the, the actual data says that most customers you could, so you could reasonably expect maybe 1.5 orders. That's about, that's a pretty good way to think of it. Or probably more like 1.3 orders for every customer you have. And that's in the past. What about the future? Very difficult to say. Okay, so I don't agree with that one. But the bigger question, right, the longer the customer continues to purchase from a custom company, the greater their lifetime value becomes except that that 60% doesn't really move. <clears throat> so looking at it this way, I just don't see much value in it. Uh, why is it important? The longer the lifestyle, the more value. But what are you doing to do, to do that? And they say tracking and improving. Well, tracking isn't the same as improving. 
and they don't really give you a lot of improvement allows you to serve the it allows you to identify the specific customers that contribute the most revenue well you can do that anyway you just sort your customers by life to date sales you don't need any lifetime value you're because you're gonna you're gonna service individuals you know you don't you just don't need this at all and it doesn't do you any good really and uh yes customer service is important as i pointed out yesterday companies who think they can just cut customer service all of your customer segments will will shrink uh, no matter how long they've been with you you know there's another theory of marketing that also is not well proven or documented that the longer a customer's with you the more loyal they'll be not really you know just imagine if you have a lifelong friend and you punch him in the nose will he st still be your friend probably not you know it doesn't matter <laughs> you, know, you do bad things to your customers they'll leave okay so anyway we'll page over to this one this is from a guy named john miglosh what a name how do you pronounce that i used to be a columnist for dm news uh till they edited my, one of my articles into nonsense literally you know they gave me a word count i wrote to the word count and then they cut another 25 percent 30 percent of it and it just didn't make any sense. I said, there's two kinds of customers, ones who depend on a local trading area and ones who don't, who have a national trading area or whatever. So the article stopped with the local and it didn't get to even get to the point. Editors don't always understand the point of an article. And uh, that's very, very dangerous. So um, direct marketing is, however, built almost universally on the principle of getting and keeping customers okay most of the time we want our customers to come back okay and so in the late 80s early 90s there was a big emphasis on this customer lifetime value and uh it was really it was really codified by martin bear and i yesterday i said old dominion but i think he was from old american life insurance company in kansas city and uh you know feel free to correct me on that but anyway martin martin uh came up with the idea that we shouldn't just look at our immediate purchases but we should look at subsequent payments in term life because they go on for a long time <clears throat> and in term life we know that the customer either keeps paying and tells you what policy number they're paying for or you cancel them uh, or they die and they get the benefits and then someone else tells you they're dead now pay us the money okay the beneficiaries <laughs> so in either case you know when they stop and there's a definite time when they stop okay and uh, furthermore in life insurance in term life there's no incentive of the term life co company to get you to return to renew and renew and renew and pay and pay and pay until the day you die because the Benef the benefit will be will be larger than what you paid because they hopefully invested it and also all the people that quit they got to keep the money okay so you get if you make it to dying you 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 make out really well as an investment otherwise not so much it's all down the drain but it gave you peace of mind right okay so this curve the life insurance company does nothing you don't get a you don't get a mailing from your life insurance company saying we hope you keep it till the day you die we just don't do that okay so it doesn't directly apply to uh, a catalog company or a dot-com or a you know e-commerce company that wants repeat orders right the one tr truth about that 
previous article was. We do want repeat orders, okay? Um, as, and and I'm not going to really dispute 80% of your sales come from 20% of your customers. I agree with that, right? The question is, what do you do with the other 80% of your customers, right? So direct marketing, direct, direct mail especially, um, employs tracking codes, which let us track orders to the promotions that produce them. You know, nowadays we don't do that as much. We still can, but mostly we we use matchback analysis, which is a little dangerous because com- customers might have multiple addresses and multiple names, and it's uh, you know you got to be a little loose with that tracking. Uh, one of our clients, we found that for every one order they got from their customers, they got two more orders from not customer addresses from pass along, I think. And uh, it gave them a 900% return on investment on their catalog when we fi- when we applied that and loosened up the match back a little and we showed them the numbers either way, okay? Um, so tracking allows mailers to discern the profitability of their buyers compared with non-buyers, okay? Traditional lifetime value originated in direct response, life insurance industry, yes, okay. And that, that's that story, okay? Uh, traditional life insurance attribution has to be based on long-term trends. You want long-term trends so you can project revenue into the future. However, here's the problem. Any significant change in customer acquisition, retention, or reactivation programs will change the curve, limiting its application. Both internal and external factors of competition, economic strength, product quality, customer service can nullify the curve right? So you build a curve based on the last five years. Can you, without fear, uh, project that that kind of revenue? Say, if we acquire 100,000 new customers, we can expect them to generate X. No, you can't because the future is uncertain. Okay, you can to some extent, but you have to be very careful. Plus, you have to balance the profitability of subsequent customers with the cost of acquisition. Okay, and I highly recommend you read the entire article. Uh, it does touch on that the bathtub model, which we talked about yesterday, with the where you can measure the level to measure the uh, the attrition. You can you can easily calculate the number of customers that came in from non-customer sources, from non-previous customer buyer sources, the house file. But it's difficult to decide how many of them aren't with you anymore because they could go dormant for a number of years. Uh, or you could change your reactivation programs and it makes them look dormant and then you you start it up again and they and they look good. This is pretty much what a regular customer, what a regular catalog company, this is how they think of it. Okay, the buyer file and, and one of the important things, there's actual calculations in this in this uh, in this article. We have real we have real equations and um, the real number we're after is profit. So we must apply a cost of goods multiplier. It's funny, the CFO at Cabela's said, well, we can't count this. We can't count this, uh, uh, your numbers, because you didn't, use a, you didn't use a cost of goods. I said, that's because you didn't give us the cost of goods. We asked for it several times, and you wouldn't give it to us. So we plugged a number based on what Dick told us. It's funny how, you know, the CFO will pick you apart if you're not careful. Anyway, um, but what you know, it doesn't really do you that much good to calculate revenue, average revenue per customer. That's not going to show you the segmentation. Okay, 
but what you really need to do is you need to create a, a profitability perspective on your customers. Okay. And you say, well, what's the cost of goods? You know, what did it cost us to, to what did that item that we sold them cost us to buy? Right. And next we subtract the mailing cost for that period. Not just that one, but you got to think about it in terms of how many times are you going to mail that person over that life, over that next five years, right? So you got to subtract that. Again, we're not interested in which buyers were mailed, but the total mailing costs. We just want the sort of overall, you know, it doesn't have to get into the, into the weeds. We want to say, well, what's the buyer file worth? We're normally mailing this many pieces and, we're, and they normally cost this amount of money and we're mailing them this many times a year. Let's think of it that way. I usually do six months periods because there's a lot of seasonality in this. Finally, we apply both the variable cost of order processing, picking and shipping, uh, and an overhead figure, okay? And that, that always causes trouble. <laughs> I tell people, take your P&L for, for the last couple of years and figure out the average overhead, okay? And divide that for each year by the number of orders you processed. Okay, so you can take, you know, your rent and your electricity and all those things. Your CFO can boil that all down and probably has a two-page P&L or something that sums it all up. And you take that general overhead. I don't think you need to take in taxes and interest on your loans and stuff, but you can if you want. You take all of that number, whatever's not cost of goods and marketing expense, and you divide by the number of orders and you have a solid overhead per order. It might be a lot bigger number than you think. Now, in here, I say the buyers cover fixed expenses. Jack Miller at Quill Corporation, the founder of Quill Corporation, and I actually built a case study and presented it at the DMA and was the number one rated presentation at a fall DMA, which used to be a big deal. And uh, probably, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 presentations uh, over the course of about three or four days. Anyway, ours was the top one. And Jack taught me that it's possible you can take that overhead account, uh, overhead number, and just apply it to the buyer, to the, well, you can t take it to apply it to all the orders, but basically just charge the buyers for the overhead. And then you only can, you only can divide it by the number of buyers, uh, by the number of buyer orders. But anyway, he, he argued that you should, that the buyers pay for the overhead. And th that allowed him to understate the cost of acquisition without including the overhead per order for the new customers. And so it allowed them to shift a little bit more of the money to acquisition, which is brilliant. That's how he grew as fast as and as big as he did. Okay, and he managed to make it work. Okay, so um, all these things to keep in mind, but it will impress your CFO. And if you haven't got this for your company, you really ought to. And so what we do is we take five-year history of your profitability and we basically assign the profitability to your buyers your house file and your and the loss these are losses the house file we we want to mail deep enough you know and a lot of times we'll do the house file is you know everything beyond 24 month buyers might be leads it might be ship twos if you're in business to business it's it's everything that isn't your main hotline buyer file which is usually your like your zero to 24 month file so the zero to 24 month file, like Andrew says, is very profitable.
The rest of your buyer file is not very profitable. We can also optimize that curve if we look at mailing results on an individual drop-by-drop -drop basis. But anyway, assuming you have some idea what you're doing, the, the, the house file, you know, your goal is to sort of break even. And then your acquisition loses money. And what you have to do is you have to balance these two and make sure you make money over time, right? But by, by calculating this in terms of variables for the past five years, you can project what the optimal ratio of acquisition to profitability to milking the buyer file, and you can grow at your maximized rate. You can actually optimize through time. Not many people have done this. I probably should have worked harder to get this out in the industry, and then we wouldn't have such silly articles being published over and over and over telling you that lifetime value is just the average value times the average time. Nonsense. Have a great day. Like and share. I hope you learned something. Share it. Your friends will know you're smart. Bye-bye.